0: It always strikes me and Rex already pointed this out when he read the New Testament passage for us today. It strikes me as one of the oddest and most nonsensical statements in scripture when those Jews with whom Jesus was speaking declare that they're children of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. And and you just have to ask yourself what were they thinking at that very moment? What caused that statement to be made? It, it doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Jesus doesn't even take time, at least he doesn't take time as we have the text recorded before us, to challenge that statement based on its historical or present inaccuracy. Just sheer in the life of the people of God, it doesn't seem to make st- sense. But instead, he immediately talks about slavery to sin, and then subsequently, and we didn't read this, but if you do read a little bit further in that conversation, he's talking about the fact that their father, or if you will, their master, is really Satan. And they're slaves to their father, they're slaves to Satan in service to their master, following their master. And of course, it doesn't make them very happy, to hear about that. Now, for a moment, though, what I want you to do is to take what Jesus is saying in that passage about bondage and about freedom and lay that back on top of the Exodus section that we've read today and the story as a whole, because I think it's going to help us to understand what God is actually doing in taking the people out of Egypt. He's really delivering them, a nation out of captivity, and yet there's really something more important that he is saying that Jesus points us to in his interaction thousands of years later. We are tempted oftentimes to think of freedom as the unhindered ability to do what we want to do. Two times today, this is the first time, I'm going to quote from It's a Wonderful Life, Uh, I'd like to quote from it lots and lots of times, but anyway, today I'm going to do it twice. Do you remember the scene in It's a Wonderful Life when uh, Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed are on the phone with uh, Sam Wainwright, and he's offered them an opportunity, and Jimmy Stewart is on the phone, and he says, I don't want any ground floors, I don't want any plastics, and I don't want to be married ever to anyone. Remember what the next phrase is? I want to do what I want to do. And then the next scene is of them getting married. But that great statement encapsulates for us, oftentimes, the way we, at least internally, think of freedom. I want to do what I want to do. God doesn't call that freedom, God says that is slavery to a little pharaoh-like tyrant named me, myself, and I. God has something better when He talks about freedom. He has a freedom trail that is set up for the people And I I guess we can say—I mean, I guess you could say this from the very beginning of Scripture—but I guess we could say that the Freedom Trail that God has got the people on starts right here. It starts right in this section that we have read, and it's not going to come till its consummation. We're not going to reach the end of the story until Revelation 21 and 22. Now we get a partial in Joshua, but really not till Revelation 21, 22 do we get to the end of the journey that the people of God start off on in this particular passage that we have read together. So here's the way I want to organize it today as we start this journey together. Let's ask some questions with regard to this freedom trail, with regard to this journey. Who are you following? What might distract you along the way? Where are you going, and what are you taking? Who are you following? Here's the key biblical truth. True freedom is freedom to follow God and His will. Counterintuitive. True freedom is the freedom to follow. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. That's the way God defines freedom. Jesus said, follow me, Verse 18 of this passage before today, but God led the people round by way of the wilderness. Verse 17, he didn't lead them that way, which would have been the straight short way. He took them another way. He led the people. God did it. He did it, and we get this clearly at the end in the, in the last two verses of the, uh, the, the passage. In the pillar, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, hearkening back with this symbol of of smoke or of cloud and of fire to the covenant that was made with Abraham when the smoking pot and the flaming torch passed through the pieces of the animal, hearkening back to a burning bush and anticipating in just a few chapters, in a little while, when they will be at Sinai together. And as God describes this, as He describes this pillar, it's very sacramental language that is used in this section of Scripture. That's the way Calvin refers to it, and it's important for us to think about it this way, though I'm not going to dwell on that this week. We'll look at it more next week when we talk about actually crossing through the Red Sea. But God identifies Himself with this pillar of cloud or fire and it represents him. It is his presence with his people in a sacramental way. God was, to use language that in our modern day, I've often heard applied to this passage, and I think wonderfully so, is, is God was their personal GPS. Where are you? You are right where I want you to be. Where do you need to go? Right where I tell you to go. Jesus was the personal GPS for the disciples. The pillar was for Israel, and their freedom was found in following either the pillar or Jesus himself. Not their own sense of direction, but the way that God had established I mentioned this in Sunday school today and I warned that it would come in the sermon again so I fear not to say it but I can't n- fail to note what I said earlier in Exodus when we were talking about when when Moses first came before the people and before Pharaoh show us something do something for us convince us that you're from God and that we should really listen to you and and when you then look at the pillar, I think you naturally think, wouldn't that be great to have such a visible guide in our life? When you come to a crossroads, when you come to some decision that you need to make, do we move here or do we move there? Do I take this job opportunity, that job opportunity? Do I marry this person or should I not marry that person? What should I do? Wouldn't it be great to have a pillar lead you one way or the other? At least some of us think that that would be good to have sometimes when we find ourselves confused. Why can't there be such guidance for us? How do we know which road to take? Where is our GPS? If that was theirs, where is ours? And the answer is, And the answer is so gloriously, wonderfully simple. The answer is, our GPS is in your hand and in your heart. Now, if you've got your phone out right now, (laughs) I only mean your phone if you've got your Bible open on your phone, which is what I trust. If I see you with your phone out during the service, I really trust that you've got your Bible on your phone and that's what you're looking at. But, What is in your hand, if it's not your phone, is the Word of God. God has given that to us, and He has put the Spirit in our hearts so that, believe it or not, we have a better and truer and more reliable, ever-present guide for our lives than others did. Else Jesus would not have said to us, it is better for you if I go away it's better because i'm going to send you the spirit of god and he's going to guide you into all the truth because he's going to take what is mine and reveal it to you it's a better way that god has provided for us through the word and the word tells us to follow after jesus to walk in his ways for that is true freedom our next question What might distract us along the way in this journey as we take it? Of course, the answer of what might distract us in a journey like this with the people of God is all sorts of things, any number of things. I suppose Mr. Bunyan would identify for us all of the things that might distract Pilgrim in his journey. But let me point out just a few things very quickly from this particular section of Scripture. Let me reread verse 17 for us. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. What might distract us from along the way? Well, difficulties. Fear might distract us. Uh, Conflicts that take place. Enemies that take place. All of those things might distract us. All of those things might cause us to turn back in chapters to come, next chapter, things that could distract us, the Red Sea in front of us, or no food or no water, all sorts of things will be obstacles for the people, and all of them can cause us to lose heart and want to turn back. How many times have you had a conflict in the church and said, I want to leave, I've got to get out of here. I've got to find another place, some place other than this place where there are enemies and conflicts. We pine for an old life, or as it is simply stated in verse 17, the people might change their minds. When they see the Philistines, when they see either wars that they're engaged in or wars against them, they might change their minds and want to go back to Egypt. All sorts of things can cause us to get distracted from following. Following is going to require a certain faith in the leader. Now, we'll get into the whole Moses story here in in a little bit and how how people respond to him. But of course, the leader is God. God is the one who is leading them along the way, and they've got to have faith in him that he's leading them to the right place by the right path. Following requires for them, following requires for us a certain level of a word that is rarely used in our day, and that is resiliency. They've got to be resilient in faith to follow after God. God is gentle. He's going to lead them around, away from this war with the Philistines, but, but that's kind of they're going to get to other hard places. So for whatever reason, God thought that might be difficult for them to see, (laughs) but the Red Sea will be easier or something. Anyway, the point is God has lessons to teach them along the way that he is going to use and take them on a route. We'll get that in just, to that more in just a moment. Following requires commitment that come what may, my life is embedded with the people of God whether that be this new community of Israel heading out of Egypt, or whether that be the community of the church embedded with God, embedded with the people of God. And if we want to experience true freedom as we walk along paths together, then we've got to resist the things that'll take us off the path, that'll veer us in a different direction. Third question, where are you going? or uh, maybe better to say with reference to this particular text that's before said, not, not so much where are you going, uh, but what route are you gonna be taking to get where you're going? We know uh, from earlier in this chapter, from, because it's been said in Exodus 15 times, that they're going to the land of Canaan, the land of the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Amorites. That's where they're heading, that's the destination. The question here is at the start of this journey, what is, what's the path that you're going to take? And it appears that the people of Israel no more than get out of the driveway when their GPS says to them, recalculating. A different route is before you. No doubt, a few of them said, wait a minute. I don't know a lot about all of this geography, that all is around us right now because we've been slaves and we've been out, not out very far. But, but I think that that way right there, that's the shorter way. That's the more direct route to get up to this land that God is going to give to us. And by the way, I don't know much about the geography, but this pillar is leading us into the wilderness. You're going to get lost by following this pillar. It's was kind of like the first iPhone, GPS, iMaps, which just totally got people lost when it came out, much to some of our delight. I suspect that most of us have felt this way at some point along the way in our lives. God, couldn't you have taken me on a different route? Couldn't you have taken me to this place by something that was a little bit straighter so that I didn't have to go through all of the stuff that I went through along the way? And God's response to that cry is, recalculating. <laughs> got to take you another way. I've got more lessons to teach you. But here at the start of this journey, and in, in this passage and just into 14, are two of the most important concepts you will ever find, you will ever hear from Scripture about God's leading in your life. Now, you've heard us teach on these before, pray these things before, but they've got to get deeply ingrained into us. You can hear them taught about, for example, in Romans 8:28. But here we see them worked out before us. So here are the two principles as it relates to this leading. First of all, clearly, God's rather circuitous route for the people, not the short route, not the straight route, the circuitous route is for their good. God intends it for their good. God is providing both protection for them and lessons that otherwise couldn't be learned if they went by the shorter, straighter path. God's path, whatever He's got you on in your life, is for your good. Secondly, and now we've got to read, I'm just going to read for us the first few verses of chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piharath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zaphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. You're good in God's glory. God was using this root as a ruse. He was using it to make the Egyptians think that the GPS of the Israelites was busted. That these folks have no idea what they're doing. I thought they were really strong from all these plagues, but clearly they're wandering around in the wilderness aimlessly parking themselves in front of the Red Sea. It's a ruse. God uses the apparent foolishness of our lives to bring glory to Himself. Family members who don't know the Lord probably, as they have with my life, they've probably looked at your life and said, that is so dumb whatever you're doing is ridiculous. That is a horrible decision. It will yield awful results in your life. And God is taking those things and he is using it for his glory and to let the world know, to let them know that he is the Lord. Your good and God's glory and wonderfully, the two of those things are not in contradiction with one another, but to use a phrase from the confession, do sweetly comply with one another. If two people are together, and one of them is seeking the glory, and the other is saying, I'm, I, I'm going to seek your glory as well. then then good and glory of the other are incompatible. But for God, because seeking the glory of God is the very best thing, it is also good for us. So they sweetly comply with one another. So when you ask the question, why am I stuck in this job? Or why don't I have a job? How did I get here? Why this particular illness? Why this husband? Why these struggles with my kids? Why are my kids having these particular struggles? We're to go back to Jimmy Stort. Why do we have to live in this crummy town, live in this drafty old house? You call this a happy family? Why do we have to have all these kids? The answer for Jimmy slash George Bailey is your good and my glory that the whole world might know, whether they're Egyptians or other. Last question, what do you take with you on this freedom trail? Now, we know from a few weeks ago the things that they were taking with them are other people, right? It was a motley crew that was heading out. They were taking others with them. They were taking a meal. uh, And we know they were taking riches because God had given them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. They had asked for the silver and the gold. They were going out not empty-handed. What else do you take with you? One more thing in this passage. And if you want to know what fires up your pastor when he reads through Scripture, this verse is one of them. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Yes! They didn't forget the bones. That's where Genesis ended. Take them up. Don't forget these bones and to take me with you. Leave the leaven, take the bones. What did the bones signify? What were they really carrying with these bones of Joseph? They were carrying hope. They were carrying a hope chest with them. Promises fulfilled, promises to be fulfilled. God did exactly what he said he would do and he will do exactly what he has promised that he will do. All of the promises of God, all of the hopes of the people, all of the expectations and the desire to be led home are fulfilled. The coffin spoke of death and called them to a new life and freedom in God, because them bones are going to rise again. Those dry, 400-year-old bones of Joseph, they're going to get flesh again. There's going to be hope in those bones. Now, brothers and sisters, how do you apply this? We don't have the bones of Joseph, and uh, we did not purchase a building, as far as I know, that has any old saints uh, or any old bishops buried in it. I've been in a number of churches, uh, Orthodox churches, where you want to get hold of a relic, and you want to have the saints buried around you because God works through such things, but we don't have bones. So how do you apply this? Well, here hear the symmetry of Scripture, and believe. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You don't bear the bones. You bear the cross. You and I carry the cross of Jesus Christ with us. The death of Jesus Christ is what we carry about with us on the journey as the people of God. And it's a reminder of the death of Christ, but it has become for us a symbol of hope and a symbol of such greater hope than the bones of Joseph. Why? Because the Savior rose. The bones had flesh and he ate, and he drank, and he talked with his disciples. And so we carry about in our bodies, as Paul says, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. That's freedom. That is the journey of freedom, the freedom trail. C.S. Lewis quotes George MacDonald, And he says this, the one principle of hell is I am my own. The Heidelberg Catechism says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for my sins by His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together. For my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, makes me wholeheartedly willing from this day on to live for Him. That's freedom to follow. I'm not my own. Freed to follow and to serve the king. Let's pray.